Amen. You may be seated. Our scripture for today comes from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17, verses 22 through 28. Hear these words. Paul stood up in the middle of the council on Mars Hill and said, People of Athens, I see that you are very religious in every way. As I was walking through town and carefully observing your objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. When you worship what you worship as unknown, I now proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made with human hands, nor is God served by human hands as though he needed something, since he is the one who gives life, breath, and everything else. From one person, God created every human nation to live on the whole earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their lands. God made the nation so they would seek him, perhaps even reach out to him and find him. In fact, God isn't far away from any of us. In God, we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets said, we are his offspring. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We are continuing our series on, um, on how to build a car, and I'll, I'll get to that in a little bit, but if it's your first time joining us, I'm going to go into some details about Formula One, and you may think, like, well, what, is, what does that have to do with church? And it's like, well, I'll get there. But um, we were talking about different aspects of the Formula One car, and today we're talking about the power unit. And now, the power unit in Formula One is they kind of put a lot of the stuff dealing with the engine together and call it a power unit, including, including transmission and battery and different things like that. And it's all custom made. It's all made because in, in Formula One, they make two cars. Um, they spend millions and millions and millions of, gar- of dollars to make two. If you're going to make you know, a Dodge Charger, a power unit engine for it, you want, don't want to make two. You want to make millions. And so you're, not, you're trying to think about designing something that can be scaled up to, to sell a lot, even like fancy cars. If it's like a Porsche, you want to make millions of them still. You don't want to just make two. So there's different things that, that go into it. But unlike um, the aerodynamics or the chassis that we talked about before, one aspect of a power unit is it needs to be refueled. Now, in, in current Formula One racing, in, in a lot of, they don't refuel during the race. They have all the fuel for the whole race at the beginning, and so the cars get lighter and lighter as the race goes on. But between races, they have to be refueled. Technology has changed over the thousands of years, depending on whatever time you pick, it's changed since then. But modes of transportation always need some kind of fuel. Horses need fuel. Horses need food and water. If you don't feed a horse, he's not going to be happy and carry you um, anywhere. Sail, sailboats seem like, oh, that doesn't have fuel. It's, it's, there's always wind. But sailboats don't need fuel in that kind of way. But sailors do. Um, you, need, you need to eat in order to sail a boat. And if you don't have, you know, if you don't have your vitamin C, you'll get scurvy and you'll be talking like a pirate. Um, that's not going to be well. In fact, the um, boats were, were common metaphor for the church over the last 2,000 years. And that's why you may go into a number of churches and if you look up at the ceiling, it looks like the bottom of a boat. Um, and it's like, well, why does it look like that? It's like, well, it was intentional. It was this idea that the church was the ark of God's people in, in the world and in the earth. It also helps with the acoustics of like the really big cathedrals, but that's, I don't think that was the intention. It was really about the metaphor of the boat. Now, we're in a location where a number of you have boats. There's a lovely lake that seems to go on forever. There's a lot of boats on the lake, but 
you know, not everybody has a boat, and you don't usually have a boat, use a boat to get from place to place. Um, it's not as convenient. If you're going to get on your boat, you're probably going to drive your car down to the boat. The car is a much more common mode of transportation in our world today. And even if you have a, an all-electric or a hybrid car, you still need to plug it in. You still need fuel. My friends, we are continuing our series on how to build a car, on looking at what it would mean like to design the church at its best. The, one of the interesting things that I find about Formula One racing is it's, it's how do you design the, the absolute best car if cost is no object, if you can take all the best minds, all the best simulations, if you can run a wind tunnel as often as you can to get the aerodynamics tight, to have the best aspects to run these races, what would it look like? And it made me want to think about what would the church look like if we weren't so consumed with scaling up, if we weren't so consumed with, uh, with our past or with histories or expectations, if we were focused solely on what God is doing here, what could the church look like? We started a few weeks ago with the chassis and looking at the chassis as the foundation of the car as well as the, the foundation of the church because the church is a body that moves. We don't need to be a stilted and stiff body. We are a body that moves. And one of the aspects we talked about there is that um, the foundation of the church is not just Jesus Christ. It is hearing the word of God and putting it into practice. And that's where Jesus' great parable of the house built on rock and the house built on sand is. And so both the house on sand and the house on rock hear the word of God, but one of them does the word of God. One of them responds, and that's like a house on the rock. And when the winds come, they are sturdy, and the other does not. Here's the word of God, and this goes back and does whatever they wanted to do anyway. And that is like a house on sand, that when the winds come, it's going to be blow away. <laughs> it's going to go into the ocean. Last week, we talked about aerodynamics and, and how um, in, in racing, aerodynamics help us to prevent drag in a car, but also to increase downforce and help you with the twists and turns of life. Because we all have twists and turns of life, no matter where we are. And sometimes when I'm up, someone else is down. And when I'm down, another person is up. And the Holy Spirit can be there to help us in that space. But we could also stand up and, and cause some drag. We cannot respond to what God is doing. We can choose that we don't want to do that. But as the church at its best, we need to be a body that responds to the movement of the Holy Spirit and not just to what we wanted to do anyway. So today, we're talking about the power unit. In, in the race car, the power unit development takes place separately from other aspects of the car. There are currently 10 Formula One teams and only four power unit manufacturers. There's, there's Mercedes and Ferrari and, um, and Renault, which does the Alpine unit, and Honda Red Bull, which has an asterisk around it. That's a much longer story than a Sunday sermon. But, um, but there's 10 teams. And so those four teams have their, have their power units. And then the other teams like lease out the power units. And they really can't do anything to it. They're kind of stuck. If they have a contract, like for instance this year, Alpha, um, Alfa Romeo has a contract with the Ferrari power unit, which is really good this year. It wasn't last year, but it's really good. And so Alfa Romeo is doing really good um, because they have this better power unit than they expect it. But they can't tinker with it. They don't have the expertise. It takes a completely different kind of expertise to adjust it. But what they can work with it is, is the fuel ratio. So this is something they do have an ability to, to tinker with. And this is one of those changes that happened this year in, in Formula One, is that they moved from an E5 uh, ratio to an E10. And some of you who are car guys and car girls may have thoughts about ethanol and fuel and its propensity to turn into water and cause rust and all these kinds of things. But it's, it's the world we live in. It's what it is. 
Um, but each team can get the mix of the fuel their own way. They can, they can customize it. And that's, you know, they really want to maximize the potential of the fuel. They want to have fuel as light as possible but, possible, but also as powerful as possible. Because, you know, if you're, if you're lighter, you're going to go faster. But if you don't have the power, you're not going to make it. But they're constantly working on the ratio of the fuel. Because, again, during the, during the race, they don't refuel. But afterwards, they do. They have to be ready for the next race. And so, for me, this made me think of what is the fuel of the church? What is the fuel of the body of Christ? What is the fuel of the follower of Christ? What is the thing that we have to come back to again and again. And this gets us to the text from the book of Acts. Paul is in the city of Athens, that, that great city in what is now Greece, that is famous in the ancient world. The citizens of Athens had a pantheon of gods that you hear the stories of the Greek myths, and they're often connected, and there's like the temple of Zeus and Apollo and Athena and figures like that. But when we modern folk kind of retell the Greek myths, we make it a lot more systematic than, than it really was in practice. We synthesize a system that was much more haphazard. The gods, plural, weren't truly an everyday part of most people's lives. They weren't, they weren't focused. They didn't make sure they had to go to every single temple once a week in order to get all the, the good godly stuff they, they wanted. It was more of reference points for different activities. Like if you were horse riding, you would think about the god of the hunt or something like that in that kind of way. It was more connected to the linguistic world. There were many at that time in, in ancient Greece, there were many monotheists. They believed in the one god. A lot of Plato's writings have to do with seeking the one god. Aristotle, even more so, is seeking the one god. These are sophisticated people. They're trying to figure out what it means to be a good person, how to live a flourishing life. The goal of life is, is in Greek is eudaimonia, which sometimes is translated as happiness, but it really means like full flourishing. What does it mean to flourish, to be like a flower that's opened up, that's offering its full potential to the world? These are what they're seeking. What does it mean to be a good society? What could that look like? And so this is the place where Paul has come to preach, and it's a prominent location within the city of Athens. It's called the Mars Hill, or the, the Hill of Ares, the Areopagitica, um, because there was a temple to Ares on that place. It is where a council uh, regularly meets to discuss the affairs of Athens. And as it said in the beginning of the text, Paul has been invited, and he's speaking to this council on the Mars Hill. And he is trying to present the Christian faith to the pagan world, that there, a lot of his missionary activities have been to Jewish populations throughout the Mediterranean. He's talked to non-Jews. Christians have talked to like centurions or other folks who weren't practicing Jews, but this is like the full, first full-fledged um, apologetic presentation to the pagan world. And what he's trying to show and articulate is that the source of the pagan and Greek world is the same source as the one of the Jews and the Christians, which is itself a radical claim. The gods of ancient Greece did not claim universality. They didn't say that, like, Zeus is the god over all the world. It's like, you know, Zeus is on Mount Olympus, and he kind of covers us, and there's, you know, the Babylonians have their own gods, and the Egyptians have their own gods, and the Celts have their own gods, and different things like that. Christians took uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
as this movement towards the world and offering to the world, and that God's love is offered to all, not just to people who live on the shore of Galilee or who are live by the, by the beaches of the Jordan River, but to the whole world, to go forth and preach Christ crucified. It is a universal claim of God's love. And what Paul is getting to is that the source of the Christian life is the same source that the Greeks are seeking. They are seeking the God of all creation. They just don't have the words for it yet. God is the source in whom we live and move and have our being. Paul says he found an inscription as he was walking along in Athens. He found an inscription in a statue that said, to an unknown God. To an unknown God. And so what he's doing now, what Paul is doing, is claiming that the unknown has been made known. That what you thought you could not name, now we have a name for it. It has been revealed. The reality of the world has been revealed. The reality of creation has been revealed. We now know the truth, and the truth isn't secret. The truth isn't private. It is offered to all. It is offered freely to all. The source from which we come the source in which we live and flourish has been revealed, and that source is Jesus Christ. Now, getting back to auto racing for just a moment, one of the aspects of, of Formula One and the aspects of the competition is there's a lot of trade secrets. The teams don't share what they're doing. <laughs> Um, you know, other teams can look at the outside of a car and kind of think like, oh, they put, they put this here, they put this there. They can't see the inside. They can't see the inside. And if, you know, it's a, um, almost a self-regulating industry, and so if one team thinks another team is cheating, they're going to call them on it immediately. They're all cheating, and they're all trying to catch the other one cheating. Um, that's, that's how it functions. But the trade secrets are really, are really serious, and so they have a lot of um, non-compete. All, all the members of the teams have to sign like these really rigorous non-compete agreements so that if they leave, they can't just go jump to the next team and take whatever secret with them. It's all about having what is the edge? What is the edge you can have over another? Now, some people throughout the last 2,000 years, throughout the history of the church, um, have claimed to be followers of Jesus, and yet also claim that they have access to secret knowledge that other people don't know about it. That they have a secret, either a secret key to read the Bible, or they have a secret um, revelation that's come to them that they are ready to share. And if you want to know the secret handshake, the secret godly handshake, they will tell it to you. Um, this is not something that's recent. This has happened again and again throughout history. Because, you know, it's a human inclination to be like, gosh, you have a secret for me? Oh, man, I'd, I'd like a secret. That'd be cool. Um, it's an inclination to feel like you're inside of the group. You're inside of the in crowd. You're not on the outskirts. You're inside this desire to figure out what is, on, what is the secret, what is the truth. But what Paul is saying here in Acts 17 on the Mount of the Mars, Mars Hill is that what has been unknown is now known for all. The secret has been revealed. This is it. This is the source. This is the answer. It's not me. Paul's saying it's not me. Paul's saying it's not Peter back in Jerusalem or James. He's saying it's not, it's not Apollos. It's not, it's not a preacher. It's not any one person. It is Jesus Christ. Today, it would be like, 
me saying, like, it's not me. It's not Pastor Wilson. It's not Pastor Matt. That's not, that's not the secret. We didn't go to seminary and get the secret handshake about how to save souls. Um, the secret is revealed in Scripture in Jesus Christ. Christ is the answer. This is the power. You are loved by God. This is, this is the power. You are created for a purpose. This is the power. You are forgiven. You are forgiven now if you seek it. You are forgiven of your mistakes. You are forgiven of the ways that you have strayed from God's love. You are forgiven for the ways that you have ignored your neighbor. You are forgiven for the ways that you have hurt yourself. You are already loved. But you've got to come back to refuel. You've got to refuel that power unit. You've got to return again and again to the source. And so what has been revealed publicly, it's not a trade secret, what has been revealed publicly about God is revealed most fully in the Scriptures. It's revealed most fully in the Bible, for the Bible really is our fuel for the church. Jesus and God, God is the source, but the Bible is the fuel, the place where we can go to again and again to seek God. The Bible is the source of our knowledge of God. We experience God outside of Scripture. We experience God when we awake. We experience God when we look out over the lake, when we hear the bird song in the springtime, even though it's like it's scoldingly hot outside, but you hear these beautiful birds, and it feels like spring um, in your ears, not on your body. It feels like spring. Um, you, we experience God when we see the smile of a child, when we, when we have a great meal <laughs> that, that is surprising. We experience God when we hear a song that connects us. But we also especially experience God in seeking the Scriptures, when we return, which we can return to again and again, so we can understand our connection to God, our source and resource with God, and we are refueled by God's love and truth. Now, the Bible has been abused and can be abused, not because it is ineffective or weak, but because we are humans and we can abuse anything that is good. Last week, I talked about how, you know, that sin is basically, sin isn't about, like, good guys and bad guys. Sin is about a gift, being given a gift and then distorting it and tearing it. That we each have been given this gift of life and each of the gifts we have in this world, that we have the opportunity to twist it for ourselves or to, to receive it and use it and give it. And that's the same thing with the Bible, that we are, we are given the Scriptures. We can take them for what they are. We can seek them for their fullness, or we can, like, pick out pieces of it and use it to try and hurt people. There is no gift that cannot be turned away from its original purpose. When we read it, when we read the Bible apart from the self-giving love of Christ, the Bible can be used to justify our own sin and desire for domination. So reading the scripture together, though, helps us from this temptation. The Bible didn't descend from heaven into each of our hands. It is offered to us through the church, through a body of Christ, through a people. Now, some people are very familiar with the Bible. They've been in Bible studies all their life. They have never missed a single Bible study since they were three years old. Um, they have, they've read it a lot. They know a lot. They can, they'll ace you in Bible quiz. They are awesome. But there's other people. Um, the Bible can be intimidating, it can, be, it can be nervous to be like, I don't, you know, I don't know about the Bible. I go to church. I love God, but the Bible, it's just confusing. Some people, maybe they had an experience. They went to a Bible study once, and they asked a question, and it was shot down, and people gave them a weird look, and they thought they felt, they felt stupid because of their question. 
It's the same thing that happens with, with kids sometimes with singing, that a, that a child will sing in public and someone will make fun of them, and then they feel like they don't have a good voice and they never have a chance to sing. This happens, this happens a lot, and it is a tragedy that we each have something to get out of Scripture, no matter where we are, whether you know all the, all the biblical language, whether you know all the biblical languages. That's like, I can't even say the, the word biblical. It's like, well, I don't pronounce the words in the Bible. Um, whether, you, whether you know all those languages, you can pronounce all those words perfectly, or if, if you don't, there's more to get out of Scripture together. The Bible is the fuel for our power unit because that is the place where Christ is most fully revealed. But like I said, we need to read it together. We must live it together. We must offer it publicly and openly. There is no trade secrets from Scripture. There's no trade secrets in seminary. I didn't go to a Methodist seminary and be like, okay, this is the Methodist secret to the Bible. It's not a secret. It's public. It's offered publicly. It's offered to the people. We continually offer God's love to the people. We don't have all the answers to the Bible. I don't have all the answers to the Bible. Pastor Matt doesn't have all the answers to the Bible. We seek that together. The Bible is always most powerful when read together. When the child, the elder, the preacher together look at Scripture to seek to understand what God is doing here. The experience of Scripture gives rise to wonder and to questions, and such questions bring a reader into contact with the divine worlds of meaning behind, of, and in front of the texts of Christian Scripture. But all such worlds for Christian readers are centered on and find their place relative to Jesus Christ, who is the fullness of the self-revelation of God. The Christian reader thus takes all thoughts captive to Christ. We have Bible studies at this church, we have our Sunday school um, that meets at 10. We have uh, the Bible Bees on Wednesday night. I'm looking to start a new Bible study sometime soon. But if you want to take a step to refueling in Scripture, I think the easiest thing is this, this newfangled technology called, called a phone. If you have a smartphone, there's a Bible app. And it's, it's pretty awesome. It's, it's, you can read the Bible in almost any language, but one of the cool things is, is you can get the audiobook, basically, of the Bible. So you can be on your commute listening to, like, First Chronicles talk about all the, all the people who were born. Um, that may be, I wouldn't recommend starting with First Chronicles, but, um, but it's a way to get it. They also have uh, reading, uh, reading guides and reading plans. And so if you want to just start, like, one chapter a day to get through a gospel and, and build into it, it's a great place to start. And, but one of the things that's really important is to write down questions that come up. If you have a question that, that arises out of hearing the Bible or, or listening or studying, is to, to write it down and ask it and to talk to someone. You can talk to anytime. You can talk to me about it or find someone else in your life that you want to talk to about. Because there, there really aren't, there aren't dumb questions in, in the Scriptures. But each is a response to what God is doing and can guide us into a deeper understanding of what God is doing there. If we are going to be the church at its best, Scripture has to be our source and how we read the Bible matters. There's some things in the Bible that are jarring to modern sensibilities. There's some things in the Bible that I don't, frankly, understand. And the simple way to read the Bible is what I call the a la carte method. And, and that means it's to pick and choose the things I like. Like if you go to a restaurant and you're like, I would like the beet salad and um, the chicken fried chicken and um, fish tacos. It's like, that's 
It's a weird meal, but maybe I like it. Um, it's, my, it's my a la carte. I get to pick what I want. And so, and so this, is, you know, this is how a lot of us often like, fall into reading. We're like, oh, this is a cool part. I'm like, I like this verse. I'm like, that's kind of weird. What if I drop it? Um, it's, it's not as fun. But this is, this is how people have read it for many times. And Thomas Jefferson, in fact, the third president of the United States, this is how he read the Bible. He, he put together what, he, what we call, he didn't call it, he called it the Bible, but we call it the Jefferson Bible. This is the Jefferson Bible. This is, he said, Jesus was a cool guy, but he did some weird stuff. So I'm going to cut out all the weird stuff. This is what's left over. Um, <laughs> Jesus minus the weird stuff. This is the Jefferson Bible. Uh, but but there's, there's a problem <laughs> with it is the problem is that when we read the Bible on the cart, it centers everything on us and where we are and not on God. And so then I become the judge and the arbiter of all truth. And then I am the one who is finished and perfect. I know all the answers. I don't know about this God. This is old. These words are old. Um, these things are old. This doesn't feel right. I'm just going to drop it. It's about me and not about, I can't grow from that. I can't, I can't grow in holiness or anything from that if I have the posture that I'm going to get what I need out of the Bible and then leave everything else behind. Instead of reading the Bible a la carte, we can look at Scripture through the lens of the love commandments, love of God and love of neighbor. Do I see the love of God here? Do I see the love of neighbor here? If I do, awesome, praise God. If I don't, then I'm the one who doesn't understand. And, and then we have to pray, or you don't have to, but for me, it's like I, have to, I pray to God, God, show me what is going on here so that I can see your love here. An example of this for me was the genealogy at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. For years, decades even, I read it and was like, this is the most boring thing. <laughs> I do not understand. Why well, got to get through all these begets, God? There's so many begets. I don't know any of these names. It's always this pronunciation challenge. What is going on? But I was like, okay, I'm not going to cut it out. Lord... Help me to see your love here. Help me to see your love here. It took me about 20 years, but, but God, God, I was stubborn, but God saw me through. And now I love the genealogy. I'd love to preach it. It's, I need to figure a way to present it that's not as boring as just the genealogy itself. But um, I, I found God's love there, and it's amazing. And it's amazing. And it was, I was patient with it. Patient with it. And that's the possibility throughout Scripture of not being in the position of, I am the expert, I am the master, but Lord, speak to me. Maybe, maybe it's not my season for this. Maybe I need to look at another text. The great, you know, the great song, for everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. That, that comes from the Bible too. Um, a time to be born, a time to die. That comes from the Bible. It helps us to guide that, you know, you may not be in the place for everything right now. None of us ever are. We never have time to do all the things we want to do. But we have different seasons that can help us to see maybe this is the season for me to go into the scripture here. Another way to read hard passages is to use the clear passages to inter interpret the obscure ones. That there are some passages in scripture that are obscure. It's like, what is going on here? And you'll like, I'll, as a preacher, I'll look into a Bible commentary and be like, what's going on in, in 2 Peter 3, 5? And the commentary will have a footnote. It's like, Nobody knows what's going on here. <laughs> um, there, there are a few of those. Like, our scholars have different interpretations, like different ideas. One person thinks it's this, and all these kinds of things. Um, one of my uh, great teachers I love used to say that the, the reason why there's obscure parts in Scripture is intentional. Because if the whole Bible was clear and obvious, we would read it and think we understood everything and move on. And we wouldn't spend time 
there. The obscure passages help us to stay engaged with God's word. But we don't have to just like jump to something that's obscure and like throw our hands in the air and say, I don't know, let's move on. Um, instead, to take what is clear to, and use it to interpret what is obscure. For instance, the, uh, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We can use that. God's love, that is true. God loves me, that is true. Let me take that verse that I understand and bring it into something I don't understand, which is, for instance, in, in the book of Joshua and the, the invasion into Canaan is, is a part of Scripture that challenges me. But when I read it in light of God's love, I can see it in a different light and understanding. The Bible is our source because it never runs dry. We can keep refueling, but it's never going to get to the point where it's empty. I mean, for the last hundred years, people have been talking about peak oil. This was an issue in like the 1920s. There was an idea that they were reaching peak oil. I mean, one of the things in, in Nazi Germany, they were really focused on synthetic manufacturing of fuel because they thought they would never be enough gasoline in the world to run all their tanks. Over and over again, you hear about peak oil, peak oil. It hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen at some point. There is a mass of the world that there is eventually going to be no more petroleum products that can be extracted in any way. Um, and it may be in 50 years, it may be 500 years or 1,000 years, but there will be a point where, where that's it. There's nothing else to be found. But at that day, the Bible will still be present and still be refueling the faith. It is not going to run dry. In 2,000 years of scholarship, the Bible has not run dry. Nobody's got figured it, and figured it out um, because God is continually present, continually offering God's self to us, God continually offering life to us. The source in whom we live and move and have our being is here in the Scriptures, offered to us as a church. Our power unit is here. And so as a body, let us be propelled forward through Scripture. As a body, let us be propelled forward to love and to serve and to give together through God's Word for us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us through the Scriptures. Help us to be a people of the book who are open to your movements here and now, in reading and listening and learning together how to be your people in this world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.